Today's episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash deathdyingpod. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Today's episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things is also brought to you by BarkBox.com. Get one free extra month of BarkBox at getbarkbox.com slash deathdyingpod. You're listening to the Modern Horrors Podcast Network. Just a quick shout out to Daniel Smith and Diadarko for supporting the show on Patreon. It means a lot. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash deathdying and other things. Any little bit helps. Now, on to the show. Basements. Cellars. Why are they so spooky? Underground rooms with no windows lit by a few weak light bulbs. Sounds like they shouldn't be scary at all. I still remember the basement in my childhood home, and I honestly still have nightmares about it. Not as many as I did when I was a kid, but they still happen. And in all the nightmares I have about that damn basement, the monsters always come from the same place. The dark corner with the water heater. It's funny when you think about it, really. A basement is just an underground attic, right? And attics... Well, attics aren't exactly free of horrors either, are they? But that's for another time. This month, on Death, Dying, and Other Things, a story about a basement. In holding together the world, two adult children grapple with the secret their parents have left for them. Death and dying, the thresholds between this world and the next, the boundary between light and dark, the barrier between worlds, and that's where we're going. We are going into the shadows to bring you stories of horror and heartbreak. From the Modern Horrors Podcast Network, this is Death, Dying, and Other Things. I'm Justin Buskey. Stay with us. It wasn't until mom died and I was cleaning out my childhood home that I worked up the courage to approach the dark corner of the basement for a second time. It had been a specter of my childhood, spurred on in no small part by my parents' insistence that I not, under any circumstances, approach that part of the house's musty underworld. It was a regular occurrence in my nightmares because of this. The basement, in general, was a recurring character to those night terrors. And in particular, whatever awful thing meant me harm during those unconscious episodes originated from that dim corner. Making matters worse was my constant confrontation with that space. Our father had set up a large area with carpet and an old sofa, surrounded by chests and shelves, and put the bulk of our toys down there designating that part of the basement one of only two parts of the house my sister Beth and I could play. 
If they weren't in our respective rooms or outside, our toys were only allowed in that space downstairs. The basement in that house was large, but not large enough that the prohibited corner could remain completely out of view. I've been calling it a corner up until now, but that's a bit of a misnomer. It was only a corner of the basement in the abstract, colloquial sense. In actuality, it was more of a nook, or perhaps an alcove, a small yet menacing recess on the far side of the basement wall. My parents had stacked boxes nearly to the ceiling, effectively walling it off from my sister and I, which only added to the mystique and to the dread. What could possibly be back there? The boxes forming the wall were easy enough to identify. Most of them had seasonal decorations for Christmas and the 4th of July. My mother went exceptionally mad for Christmas, and so those made up the bulk of those cardboard boxes. Beyond the wall, though, was only speculation. My sister and I guessed often. Maybe there was a gun cabinet back there, but we never knew our parents to hunt. Maybe it was where they hid our Christmas gifts, but that didn't explain why we weren't allowed over there the rest of the year. Could have been the water heater, but that was completely visible in a separate corner of the house. Whatever was back there, my parents reminded us on a near-daily basis not to go near that corner, not to move those boxes, and we, my sister and I, weren't kids to step out of line. We listened. We kept clear of that corner, my sister for her entire life, and me until I was 14. Nothing prepared me for seeing my mother pass, especially not seeing my father pass. Everything about the episode was different. My father died painlessly in his sleep. My mother was in a car accident. She was nearly home when a ball bounced into the road, followed by a pursuing six-year-old. My mother reacted quickly enough, swerving, but rammed into an electrical pole, which, even at 20 miles per hour, was too much for her 62-year-old body to handle. She made it to the hospital, but not much longer. She held on long enough for me to arrive, so she could call me to her bedside and say one last thing to her son. Paul, please listen to me. Don't untie the knot, she said. Don't untie the knot. We couldn't have kids. We couldn't have kids. And then, life left her. My sister couldn't catch a flight for another half day. My hormones had been off the charts for two years by the time I was 14. My moods were volatile, my face was erupting, and my entire body hurt. My bones felt like they were cracking and healing and cracking again on a daily basis. I was miserable and disobedient for maybe the first time in my life, and looking back, I think my parents were a bit shocked at how poorly I was taking all my body's changes. On one night in early spring, the exact date has since left my memory. The four of us were at the kitchen table. It was probably around 6.30. That's when we usually ate dinner. The sun hadn't quite set, 
and its warm light filtered in through the kitchen window, reflecting off the plates and glasses and silverware. My dad got up from the table to close the blinds, complaining of the glare. He was already in a foul mood, as he was on most weeknights, from tangling with his boss all day. He often called work a war between his co-workers, himself, and management, and often joked each morning that he was headed into the trenches. The unnecessary daily conflict put him off each day, and though he tried his best not to let it affect his home life, there are times when daily struggle like that bubbles up. Like, for example, when his son, just to be a shithead, remarks that the sunlight reflecting off every shiny surface on the table, making his tension headache worse, is just no big deal, and some of us like the sunlight anyway. What? he asked me, boring a hole into my face with his narrowed eyes. I immediately regretted my comment, both because I was about to catch hell, and because it was just pointless needling from me, just overtly cruel. Honey, my mom said, trying to head him off, No, I want to know why our son thinks it's so unreasonable to close the blinds. I didn't mean, I started to say, but Dad cut me off. You did mean. You wouldn't have said it if you didn't mean. And he had a point. I looked down at my plate and pushed the food around. Appetite had rocketed out of my body, and I desperately wanted to leave the table, but I knew I wouldn't be excused if I asked now. I just meant, the setting sun is nice to see. It just feels like a dungeon otherwise, I said. But that's not the way you said it now, was it? He asked me. No, I said. I could hear in his voice that he was calming down. It was as much an overreaction on his part as it was on mine. I'm sorry, I said. It's okay. Eat your food, he said. But there was no chance of that. I had worked myself up again about the episode at dinner near midnight when my dad finally went upstairs to bed. I listened to each step he made across the upstairs floor, each step creaking from the weight of his adult body. For 15 minutes, he went from the closet to the bathroom, to the linen closet in the hallway, back to the bathroom, and then finally to bed. Each step made me angrier. How could he do that to me at the dinner table? I gave him 30 minutes to fall asleep and then got out of bed myself. I formulated my payback while lying in bed. A simple enough plan, but one that would stick in his gut next time he treated me so poorly. I was headed down to the basement to move that stack of boxes to find out what was down there, and then, after I knew, I'd bide my time, wait for the next time he got impatient with me, and knife him with it. Each step down to the basement creaked in some way but years of practice had led me to the perfect path down. Step on the left corner of the third step, the right side of the fifth, the center of the eighth. I knew the position of my foot on each of the stairs, and once I was down, standing on the concrete foundation of the house, I was free. I reached up instinctually and pulled the chain to the first light. That first bulb was enough to cast light over the majority of the basement. It was a high wattage, highest you can get, I think, and that was by my dad's design. You want at least one fixture bright enough to see by, no matter where you are in the basement. 
At least that's what I think, he used to tell me when I'd complain about how bright it was. You can always turn it off when you've got the other light switched on. I pulled my lips tight over my front teeth, simultaneously pissed at and now appreciative of my dad. I walked around the basement, from the play area I had grown out of, but my sister still loved and used daily, to the forbidden corner with its wall of boxes, and pulled each chain, getting as much light as I could down there. I was starting to get uneasy. The basement during the day was fine, if a little spooky. There was usually enough noise filtering down from upstairs that it kept the space grounded. My mom watching TV, or my dad walking across the kitchen. But now, after midnight, the peace of that place was a thick fog laying over me like a heavy burden. It became hard to breathe. I stood in front of that wall of cardboard boxes, each labeled with the holidays' decorations that they contained. I started with Christmas. I was still, despite my recent growth spurts, a bit too short to reach the topmost box. I looked around for the step stool, the one that was always down here, but then remembered that my mom had taken it upstairs that day to retrieve something from a high shelf in the kitchen and then didn't bring it back down here. I only needed about six inches to reach the box, but the best I could do was a wooden rocking chair near the sofa in the play area. Made of heavy, solid wood, I had to drag it along across the floor using its rockers like the runners on a sled. I got it as close as I could and then, precariously, stepped up onto the chair's seat. I knew this would be unsafe, but I didn't plan to be up there long, pop up, grab the box from the top of the stack, and then hop back off. That was my plan. I popped up onto the seat, grabbed the topmost box of the Christmas decorations, and then the weight of the box threw the chair off balance. It rocked backwards, and so did I, and before I could react, I was headed to the concrete floor. My ass hit first. Well, tailbone, really. The pain shot up my spine like electricity. My body continued down, pulled by gravity. My back rolled, flattening against the floor, my spine acting like a whip. And when the action reached my neck, my head snapped back, the back of my skull cracking soundly into the concrete floor. I saw nothing but white for several seconds, heard nothing but a high-pitched whine, and when those two sensations faded, I was left with nothing but searing pain behind my eyes and an intense pounding up the length of my back. I pushed the box of decorations off my chest, onto the floor, and scrambled to my feet. I still had a mission, and though it was hard for my eyes to focus on any one thing, I clawed the rest of the boxes in that stack out of the way, creating a small gap in the wall. I decided that was fine and slipped between the cardboard boxes and the concrete block wall. The area behind the boxes, a three-by-six-foot alcove, was covered in dust, cobwebs, dead insects. Whereas the rest of the basement was kept fairly clean, my sister and I were expected to as part of our chores, it looked like not even my parents cleaned back here. I blinked a few times, rubbed my temples, and tried to cool the pain. My eyes calmed, and I scanned beyond the mess. There was nothing, nothing back here, save for two things. A rope 
perhaps an inch in diameter, that hung from a hole in the ceiling, and another rope that emerged from the floor. Where the two ropes met, about eye level, they were tied together in a simple pretzel knot. This is what my parents had so desperately hidden from us all this time. Two ropes tied together, attached to the ceiling and floor. Stepping toward the ropes, I ran my finger down the rough twine and saw that it wasn't just made of brown fibers. Red fibers were mixed throughout the spun rope as well, and here in the darkness they seemed to pulse lightly, in rhythm with the heartbeat pounding in my ears. Then I noticed one last thing on the floor next to the rope. A small bronze plaque paved into the concrete with an inscription that read, To hold together your world. I left the basement exactly like I found it, and never mentioned it as long as my parents lived. It made me feel so odd. I felt queasy for days afterward, from the sheer oddity of it all. My sister stood nearby as I approached that wall of boxes thirty years later. I could sense her eagerness to finally have that mystery solved, but I knew how equally disappointed and ruined this strange knowledge was likely to leave her. I knew all of the questions she was about to have to grapple with, as I had been grappling with those same riddles since I was 14 years old. Together, we moved those crumbling old boxes of holiday decorations and stacked them near the staircase so Lisa and Bobby, my two children, and Beth's husband, Ken, could retrieve them easily on their trips back and forth up and down the stairs. I placed the last of the boxes on the stack and turned to find Beth standing just on the threshold of that alcove, just on the other side of where those boxes used to be, as if she was still being held physically outside of that corner of the room. I walked over to her and broke the silence. You know, I came down here one time when I was 14 and looked back here, I said. Looking up and down that rope, it seemed somehow more menacing than it did back then, in light of my mother's last words. The fibers had gotten darker. The red ones had spread like a bruise, infecting purple into splotches up and down the cord. On the floor at the base of the lower rope was a small recess in the concrete where that bronze plaque used to be. This is what they hid from us all those years, she asked. Yeah. I guess. I was the only one that was able to attend the reading of my mother's will. My parents didn't have much, and my sister, in the day after my mother's passing, had to make arrangements for a babysitter for my four-month-old niece, which ended up being her mother-in-law and her husband to catch a flight. The will was short. What little money they had went into three separate college funds for my two children and Beth's child, and the house was to remain in the family indefinitely. Wait, what does that mean? I asked John, my parents' lawyer. It means you can't sell the house, he said. Is that legal? Can they do that? I asked. Well, yes, strictly speaking, the house now belongs to a trust they've set up, the same trust that the college funds are going into. You're named trustee in here, John said and pointed to the will. And if you're unwilling, or unable, Beth is named as the secondary. So the house just sits there now, I asked. 
I guess you could move into it if you wanted. No, I said. Okay then, yes, the house just sits there. There's a little money set aside for maintenance that should last over the next decade or so, John said. I think he could see my reticence because he continued. Look, I know this can be overwhelming. Doris just died, and now you're being saddled with this. But it's really not that much work, and you already live here. Think about how much more difficult this would be for Beth halfway across the country. I nodded. Can I say no? I asked flat out. It's a free country, he said. But I don't think you should. I leaned down and ran my hand over the spot in the basement floor where the plaque had been. There used to be a plate here with words on it, I said. What did it say? Beth asked. Um, something like supporting the world, I said, trying to remember the exact phrasing. To hold together your world, that's what it said. Strange, Beth said, getting close to the rope to examine it more closely. This thing's been here our whole lives? How old are you now? 37? 37 years? Seems like it. Whole corner's dirty enough to be untouched for that long, I said. What a weird thing, she said. Very. You know, Mom told me not to untie this knot, I said. When? Right before she died, I said. I wonder what she meant by that, Beth said, trailing off and running her fingers down the coarse rope. I think she was being completely literal. She was telling us not to untie that knot. Oh, come on. You can't be serious, she said. Have you ever known Mom to say something she didn't mean, I asked. She was dying, for Christ's sake. She didn't mean, literally, don't untie this knot of rope in the basement. She was hallucinating or something. You always do this, I said, before being cut off by Beth. No, don't make this about us, she said. This isn't about our shit. Look, all I can tell you is that Mom said not to untie this knot, and she seemed scared as hell when she was telling me. Of course she was fucking scared, Beth said. She was dying. We can't fucking sell this house. One of us is on the hook to take care of it. I know this all fucking sucks, but they're gone. Mom and Dad both. And this knot, this rope, isn't going to keep them around. I found myself, surprisingly, crying. I had held together over the last few days, but all of it was flowing out now. I know you were scared of this fucking corner. I was too. Mom and Dad didn't help that. Look, we can put it all behind us right now, okay? I looked over at the rope. The stupid rope. Stretching from floor to ceiling in that musty old basement. We can't sell this house, she said. But we can turn it into something, right? Why don't you move in? We can fix this place up, make a play area down here, like when we were kids. So when you have Lisa and Bobby, they have a place to hang out. This would be better than that small apartment, wouldn't it? I nodded. You're right. You're right, I said. But first, we gotta clean out this corner, Beth said. I laughed. All right, she asked. All right. Now, are you going to get rid of this rope, or should I? 
Beth asked. No, you go ahead, I said. She smiled and hugged me. We're going to make this place real great, she said, I promise. If we've got to take care of it, and you've got to live here, it's going to be ours, not theirs. She put her hands on the knot and pulled. It took some work. The knot was tight, and the rope was used to being in that shape. But eventually, eventually, the two ends of the rope fell apart. I let out a ragged sigh. Doesn't that feel better? Beth asked, turning to me. It does. It really does. I thought back to my parents' commands to stay away from this corner. I thought back to the specter of danger that brought with it. I thought back to the nightmares. All of it for some old rope. How much is in that maintenance-for-this-place account? Beth asked. Why? I asked. I was just thinking we might use some of it for some renovations, Beth said with a wry smile. I don't know that we can do that, I said. We'll ask the lawyer, she said. I nodded and took out my pocket knife, reached up, and cut down the higher rope, then leaned down and did the same for the one attached to the floor. Both lengths of rope started to crumble in my hands. Hey, Paul! My brother-in-law shouted from the top of the stairs. Yeah, I said. Are your kids down there? I can't find either Lisa or Bobby up here, and the boxes they were carrying are just laying in the middle of the living room floor. Um, I'm sure they just wandered off upstairs, I said. Beth's cell phone rang in her pocket. Oh, it's Catherine. It's your mom, Ken, Beth shouted. I wonder what she wants, he shouted back. Beth answered the phone. Hello? Wait, slow down. What do you mean missing? Right out of her carrier? Catherine, what are you talking about? She's not old enough to just get up and leave. Beth's cell phone clattered to the concrete floor, and before I had even a moment to process the fact that my sister had disappeared in front of my eyes, the floor opened up beneath me, and I was falling. It's impossible to say how long I fell for. I saw mountains and valleys pass me by. Rivers flowed through me. I saw every color there is and some that there aren't. I saw the sun rise and set and rise again and again. And then I started to see them out of the corners of my eyes, groping toward me, towering above me, watching me fall, ignoring me completely. And every time I looked in one of their directions, they shifted, stayed just out of sight, lived in my peripheral vision. I screamed for a long time, too. Screamed for anyone to find me. Begged and pleaded and prayed for anyone or anything to put my world back together. No one has and I don't think anyone ever will.
This episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things was produced and edited by me, Justin Buskey. The story, Holding Together the World, was written by me too. You can follow me on Twitter, at Justin Buskey. Intro and outro music is by the prolific Eric Warnke. Check him out on SoundCloud. Special thanks to Cardboard Boxes and Rope. Death, Dying, and Other Things is a member of the Modern Horrors Podcast Network. Check out all the other great shows. New episodes the first Thursday of every month. This has been Death, Dying, and Other Things, and I've been your host, Justin Buskey. Stay out of the shadows. Stay out of the shadows.